Amen. Thank you, Dan. Well, as we begin, I want to talk to you today about the second best day of my life. And some of you guys may have a day like this as well. For me, the second best day of my life was December 31st, 1994. That was uh, after five years of on and off dating, nearly two years of engagement, Danielle and I finally got married. Yes. I know this is going to be similar to some of your guys' story, but I'll just give you the details of this because I think it, it's hopefully something that we can all relate to. And for those of you guys who aren't married yet, maybe something that God will call you into and you get to be encouraged with. But let me tell you a little bit about that day. I know I've mentioned some of it before, but we got together at her home church. We had nearly 300 guests there. And yes, that was way too big, but it was fun. We had 10 attendants, five on each side, plus a couple of junior bridesmaids. We had family members from all over the country. We didn't have just one officiant, but we had two because one of the officiants wasn't official, so he wasn't really an officiant. But we had a Bible teacher who was meaningful to us, and my youth pastor was uh, both instrumental there. So we all got dressed up. I had tails. I had to tell my kids what tails were. I had, you know, a tuxedo with the little flaps on the end. Um, we sang songs. We read scripture. We listened to challenges from both the pastor and the Bible teacher. We received blessings from our parents. We worshiped. And then when all that was done, we said vows. And while we had been preparing for that day with counseling and with books and with audios, the, it was actually on cassettes back then, there, these little things that you guys might not know what they look like anymore, but we listened to cassettes. But ultimately, when we said our vows, we committed to something that we knew was serious, but I don't think we fully understood just how serious it was. You see, on that day, Danielle and I made two decisions. And they're kind of two sides of the same coin, but one decision that we put off, we stopped being single that day. It meant that our actions no longer were actions of a single person. Our thoughts were no longer thoughts of a single person. Our motivations were no longer single motivations. Our commitments were no longer single commitments. And the second decision we made on that day was to put on being married to one another. Now those actions are, are, were committed to one another. We had to make decisions together, realizing that so many decisions would impact more than just one of us. You know, prior to that, yeah, we were dating for a long time, but prior to that, we could make a decision that it might not impact the other one so much. Now every decision is a, is, has a bigger impact. Our thoughts, we had to consider someone else's needs and concerns. Our motivations, maybe selfish motivations before, had to take into account a family. Both of those decisions happened at one time on that same day. But in the 10,467 days since that initial decision, Danielle and I have both, yes, it's a long time, we have both been in a process of being renewed and transformed. And this is 
in part because neither of us are the same person we were on December 31st, 1994. I've heard someone say recently that my wife, and I can attest to this, my wife has been married to five men, all of them me. Because, you know, with each decade, with each year, we change and we're different. And now she's got to learn how to love a man who is different than the man she married December 31st, 1994. We've learned new things. We've experienced new things. We've matured. We've grown. We've failed. We've added children to the mix. We've changed jobs and careers. We've moved. We've added pets. We've buried family members and so much more. And all of that is causing us to be renewed and transformed. That decision that was so crucial back then is just as crucial today as it was then. We are daily being renewed by each other and by God. And I bring that up because in the passage we're considering today, we'll find that the decisions and the transformation of marriage mirror our life in Christ and the decisions and transformation that happen there. Let me encourage you, if you've got your copy of God's Word, to open it to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 17, which is the, the part that, that Dan read. And if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to take the one that's there. We've got some other ones out in the book nook. I'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. But let me just kind of give us a little perspective. You see, leading up to this point, Paul has been challenging these Gentile Christians, most, these Christians, most of whom have been Gentiles, some are Jewish, but most of these Gentile Christians to, be, to begin acting like Christians. And as we saw last week, we are challenged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called, to live as though we earned the life that God has saved us into, to live as though we, we earn it, that we get to keep it. He then went on to talk about the unity of the church and how God called us into one body and provided gifts for us in the church in order to foster unity and growth. And as elders, that is one of the things we're really hoping in these community groups that we get to express the different gifts that God has given each of us. But here, as we read a few minutes ago, Paul takes a similar approach to that which he's done before. Now, see, there are about five different times in the book of Ephesians that Paul makes this comment. He said, you were once, or you used to, and now you're this. And so he does that same kind of thing here, and he reminds them of something that they were before, some way that they thought before, and how he wants them to think differently now. And so as Paul continues to encourage these Ephesian Christians to live out the life that they've been called into, he transitions to their minds. He transitions into their minds by pointing out the futility of their old ways of thinking, or, or as we look at it, of our old ways of thinking. Tim Keller has noted that so often when people get, begin to investigate Christianity, one of their first questions is, do I have to change what I'm doing? Do I have to change my morality? For instance, they might think, do I have to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or my girlfriend? Do I have to stop doing this activity? Do I have to change how I spend my money? Do I have to change how I spend my time? Do I have to change my ethics at work? And so one of the things that Keller points out is that, yes, all of those things will change, but the actions are not the place to start the change. He begins in their minds. Paul notes here that the difference isn't so much the morality 
but the mentality. Look at Ephesians 4.17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now I realize this Gentile language for us, we hear it, we read about it, stuff like that. And, and so one of the challenges we kind of have to recognize is that Paul is talking to Gentile Christians. He says, don't think like Gentiles. So is he being racist? No, he's talking about their worldview. He says, don't think like you used to before you came to Christ. He's talking about their faith system, their religion, their way of thinking. You see, all of us before Christ, we were stuck in a futile way of thinking. We were mired by selfish motivations, by proud notions of superiority. And so Paul continues. He says, they, the Gentiles who have not yet come to Christ, those people who are not yet saved, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from a life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given them, themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so while Paul does begin to address their morality, he begins to talk about that because that culture back then, I read some things this week that surprised me about Ephesian culture and generally Greek culture at that time. There were some very immoral things going on. And yet, while Paul addresses that, he says that the root of their problem is their darkened understanding. They don't know what they don't know. For example, people who might have a concept of God, and we might run into people like this today, people might have a concept of God. God is out there. He's some big, gracious, generous grandpa guy with a big white beard, and he wants me to be happy. So I'm going to do all the things that God would, would want me to do because it makes me happy. And if I'm happy, God's happy, and that's when I'll be close to God. And so some people would think that, well, I'll be happy if I do this, and then God will be happy with me, so I'm going to do that, even if it's completely contrary to what we read about God. And then there's another way of thinking that they, people might assume that God is a big judgmental God, and that he is only happy if we do certain things, if we act a certain way. And so in that line of thinking, they ask, like the rich young ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we hope that the answer revolves around some sort of just religious activity. Let me get a little bit of this. Let me just go to church or any religious activity, any religious gathering or assembly or faith system, which is why some people say it doesn't matter what you believe, but that you believe something. Again, they're darkened in their understanding. Or people will say, you're, God wants you to treat certain people a certain way, treat all people a certain way, or he, he wants you to say certain prayers, and so you have to go and say this many prayers of this kind. Maybe he wants you to simply be nice. Or some people begin to jump into even superstitious, superstitious rituals and omens in order to hope that they're appeasing God. Will my anxiety go away if I wear a cross around my neck? Will my sickness go away if I wear this or if I do this or that? Their thinking, their disconnectedness 
from God deceives them into believing that it's all about actions. Now, don't get me wrong. Actions do matter, but actions are not the starting point. Let me illustrate this another way. I've I've been reading a book lately by a guy named Ed Welch called Created to Draw Near. And the, the, the underlying premise behind his book is that we as God's people, as humans, are designed to draw near to God. We've been called into, really ultimately called to be his priest. And the New Testament calls Christians priests. He call, it calls us a royal priesthood. And so one, one of the things Welch does is he takes all of Scripture, and he's, I'm about halfway through the book now, but he's looking at the Garden of Eden, and he's looking at the tabernacle, and he's looking at the temple, and all these things, and the way that God has infused certain things in order to help us get close to him. So let me show you a little picture. Regarding the tabernacle, the temple, there, there, and the sacrifices that surrounded those places of worship, the Old Testament law generally classified things in two ways. You had common things and you have holy things. Common things were outside of the tabernacle. Holy things were the things that were considered close to God. Okay, And the common things were also classified into two categories, clean and unclean. So in that picture where you see the word holy represents everything that's in that bigger inner uh, rectangle, okay? And that small rectangle to the left of that is what we might call the holy of holies. In the tabernacle, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the priest would enter once a year to atone for the sins of all the people. And just outside of the tabernacle of of that little box is the holy place where priests could go and on behalf of everybody else, a lot of priests, where the one place only one priest could go once a year, everybody could go to that place where it says holy. But there was a place where ritual ritual sacrifices would take place. And of of course, that required clean animals, animals that were without blemish. And it had to be specific, certain kinds of animals offered by people who were clean, people who hadn't been defiled by certain things. And so then the furthest place away from God is the unclean. This is represented by people who had certain diseases or who had touched something dead. And these were animals with certain blemishes or animals that ate other unclean things. For instance, because uh, things like crabs and shrimp are bottom dwellers and they eat all of the excrement that happens from all the other fish, they were considered unclean because they were dirty from within. That's why the Jewish people couldn't eat those things. Now here's where I'm going with this. I think the darkened understanding, the old way of thinking that Paul is getting at is really a mentality. Actually, Steve, if you could pull that back up for a second. It's really a mentality of moving, doing actions to go from clean to unclean Assuming that that's what gets us into God's presence. So if I'm unclean, I've got to do certain things. The Old Testament would say if you're unclean, you have to wait so long before you can then wash yourself and you'll be clean again. You'll be allowed to be in the fellowship of everybody else. But notice that cycle from clean to unclean is completely outside of the tabernacle, outside of where God's people are intended to be. 
You see, we are intended to be in fellowship and communion with God. We are created to be near Him, but our, our actions continue to keep us in this cycle outside of the temple, outside of the tabernacle. Or think about it this way. It's like if you've ever been in Washington, D.C., and you've tried to drive up close to the White House, you know that you can't get very close, but you can get out of your car and you can walk to the pylons and you can look at the fence. You can see the White House through the gate, but it's something else, it takes something else completely to be able to get inside the gate, to be able to gain access to that building. The same kind of thing happens here. And I think it's important for us to recognize that the only way to pass from common, so clean to un, from, from unclean to clean is, is a matter of action. It's a matter of going back and forth. There are things to washing, to cleansing, to waiting. But once we've been clean, there aren't actions that we can do to get inside of holy. The only way to get in there is through sacrifice. Common to holy requires sacrifice. We need a new way of thinking, a new perspective, not necessarily a new thing to do. And hopefully this will make more sense in, in just a minute. So then let's look at the, these next couple of verses because ultimately what Paul is talking about is that we need the fundam, fundamental difference in a new mind. We need a new mind. And if, if we were able to read Greek, we would see that these next five verses are really one big, long, run-on sentence in Greek. And Paul uses some language here that is unique, not only in the New Testament, but is unique in all of ancient literature, all of Greek literature. But he begins by saying, but in verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. I mean, here's, I mean, that is not the way you learned Christ. Normally, when we think about learning something, we're going to be learning a subject Students, you're going to go back to school tomorrow. Those of you guys who are starting tomorrow are going to go back and you're going to start learning. Well, you're going to relearn, but then you're going to learn geometry. You're going to learn English. You're going to learn history or chemistry or biology. You're going to learn these subjects. And in that process, you're going to learn about people. You're going to learn about these things. But Paul, notice what he says. You're not learning about Christ. You are learning Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. It wasn't in that old way of thinking. Peter O'Brien, a, a commentary that uh, a commentator wrote on this, he says that phrase "learned Christ" is without parallel. The phrase "to learn a person" appears nowhere else in the Greek Bible, and to date, it has not been traced to any pre-biblical Greek document. So, this idea of learning a person, learning Christ. Getting his mind, getting his, who he is in us is unique here. O'Brien continues, says, Just as he, meaning Jesus, is the subject of the apostolic preaching and teaching, so he is the one whom hearers learn and receive. This formulation signifies that when the readers accepted Christ as Lord, they not only welcomed him into their lives, but also received tradition, traditional instruction about him. There's that inward, inward acceptance. He continues, learning Christ means welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. This involves submitting to his rule of righteousness and responding to his summons to standards and values completely different from what they have known. 
So learning Christ is not so much like that bracelet that we all used to wear 30 years ago. You remember that one, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? WWJD is essentially common thinking, clean, unclean to clean. What would Jesus do? Well, if I'm going to act like Jesus, let me just pretend. It doesn't get us any closer to actually being in God's space, in Jesus' presence. You see, learning Christ is not an outward obedience to some moral or religious standard, but a transformation that takes place from within. It begins with understanding that truth is in Jesus. Look at verse 21. Paul says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I know our society likes to talk about a truth. They like to talk about truth that is your truth and my truth. There's not the truth. Well, here it's kind of interesting. In Greek, the word the that we have in our English translations is not in the Greek. So what what Paul is literally saying here is not that the truth is in Jesus, but truth itself is in him because he is fully God, because he is the source of all truth. Jesus even said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through, through me. So what, how, how do we apply this to a new way of thinking? Well, I think that when we learn Christ, we learn that he not only was fully God, but fully human. He, he completely fulfilled the requirements of the law, thereby making a way for us to gain access to God entrance into that holy place, the place of the priests, entrance into the most holy place, the place of God. Let's continue to read through the text, and this might begin to make a a bit more sense. So verses 20 to 21, Paul said, but that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've learned about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Then he continues by helping us understand that we should have learned what we should have learned in Jesus, in Christ, in the gospel. Look at verse 22. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt, through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So essentially there are two decisions there, the decision to put off and the decision to put on, to put off our old self and to put on Christ. And bracketing those two, those two decisions essentially bracket one big transformation, that renewal. And it's interesting, those, those words in Greek refer to a, a certain form in Greek that we don't have in any, in any of our verbs. These Greek verbs essentially refer to a, 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 a decision that was made at a point in time and is permanent. It is complete. It was done then and it's done for all time. So essentially, that decision, that first decision to put off Essentially, when we all learn Christ, we ultimately put off our old self never to take it up again. Just as when Danielle and I got married, we put off being single never to take up being single again. This putting off of our old self involves that old feudal thinking that produced actions which simply move from unclean to clean. 
those actions, those religious rituals that just went through the motions but didn't really gain us any traction with God. It, helped, it challenges us putting off our old self, removes that idea that pleasure, I mean, even the, the Greek people here would have recognized that, that pleasure, sensuality is worship. And that's not what, what we've been called into. And so whereas one hand we put off our old self, secondly, the de- second decision that is made is then we put, off, put on the new self in Christ, which can never be removed. Just as we never put on our old self, so too in Christ we never take off Christ. This involves taking up thinking and believing that Jesus Christ gives us access to the holy place and the most holy place. Which is why in the crucifixion, we've talked about this before, when Jesus died on the cross, when he gave up his life, the temple, the curtain in the temple was torn in two because now God opened up the place where all of us could enter into that place that was restricted. Jesus fulfills all of our obligations in the law. Putting on Christ then is not a new performance, but a new position. We are in Christ. We are consecrated, set apart as holy. You see, only priests in the Old Testament could enter into the holy areas. His holiness, Jesus' holiness and righteousness gives us access to God. They only gain that access by being consecrated, which, as I said, happens through sacrifice. And then notice in verse 24 that this new self recognizes that we were created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, common things can't go from common to holy unless something happens to them. Holy things have to be purified, and often the holy things in the tabernacle were purified with fire. Think about this. When, when we have garments, when, when, when our clothes get dirty, we wash them, right? Right? We throw them in the washer and, and we clean them. But ultimately, they're going to get dirty again. They're common. But things that are precious, things that are gold, things that are silver, in order for them to be cleaned, ultimately they have to be purified, which means melted down, burned with fire, and all the impurities come off the top. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, ultimately that's what he did to us. He doesn't just wash us from the outside. He cleanses us from within, dealing with the root of our problem. Again, the only place, only way for something to go from clean to holy is through sacrifice. And that's essentially what Jesus did for us. His actions and our responses, putting off and putting on by faith, essentially moved us from being common to holy. See, normally we think about putting off and putting on on something like an an article of clothing. But as O'Brien says again, neither the Old Testament nor extra-biblical Greek writings ever refer to putting on or off a person. This Pauline expression then is without exact literal parallel. Nowhere else is this concept true, which was part of what makes Christianity so unique. We put on Christ. 
And nestled between those two decisions, the putting off and putting on, is one long process of renewal. Paul states that, when we, that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This too, as with other phrases that Paul uses in this passage, is quite odd. He, he talks about being in the spirit of our minds. Well, what is that? It seems strange that he would use those words, this renewal, which happens to us by God, is something that is happening in our inmost being. It's a transformation from within. We put off our common old self and put on the holy life in Jesus. And now for the rest of our lives, we are being purified in such a way that we begin to fully represent and live out the holy lives that we've been put on. Again, One more uh, quote from O'Brien. He says, the implication is that the pattern, the motivation, and the the direction of our thinking needs to be changed. Whereas in the past, we might have performed in order to appease God or in an attempt to gain access to God. Now we perform and act because Jesus has given us that access. As we are progressively renewed, we resemble more and more the true righteousness and holiness that God created us for. So let me close us off with a couple of thoughts. I want to just challenge and encourage us. If you've not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then begin by putting off your old self. Stop playing that common game. That religious game that's only getting you in and out of clean and unclean. Stop trying to gain access to God's space performance. Put on Christ. Gain access to God because of Jesus Christ. Receive his free gift. And then perform because you've gained that access. And then finally, let God renew and transform you. You see, the, those decisions, those, that decision to put off and to put on are decisions that God, I think, allows us to make. He draws us, makes him, himself so compelling that we can't help ourselves. But that renewal, notice the verbiage there. That renewal is happening to us. It's what God is doing in us because we allow him to do that. And so let God renew and transform you. Yield to his leading and prompting. Allow him to so change you that the actions you exhibit become a natural outworking of your life in him. So think about this. At school, thinking not so much about what a Christian should do, thinking about moral behavior or moral speech, being loving and being generous, but what Jesus has saved you for. Because going in and out of moral actions, it's good. It's better to be good than bad. It's better to be moral than immoral. But if you're a follower of Christ, you've been made holy. You've been redeemed from being common. And you've been consecrated and made holy. He's doing something new. And it may look the same on the outside, but the motivation is from within. Or what about at home, asking God to guide you to be the mother or father or son or daughter or grandparent that he made you to be, letting the word and the spirit convict and not the expectations 
of what you think a good Christian mother or father should be. There are so many churches that can get caught up in this, where we, we have certain expectations, we, we, we think it should be this way, and so then we're imposing external religious boundaries and not letting the life of Christ well up from within us. Or maybe thinking about it at work, doing your best for God's glory and not worrying so much about who gets the credit, but working because God has given you, working with authenticity, integrity. So what does all this have to do with community? I think in community, we get to share how God is reforming and transforming each of us in community groups. We, we get to create those opportunities to talk about what God is doing in each of our lives. We get to see how God is reforming and transforming each other. We get to live out the fruit of a transforming life in speech, in love, in forgiveness, in service. In fact, Paul in the next several verses, which we'll, we'll look at next, year, next week, begins to talk about that. He talks about what it looks like to begin acting this way. So I began talking today about the second best day of my life. And let me close by talking about the best day. Because for me, the best day, I wish I would have counted the number of days. I wish I knew the exact date. But the best day happened for me, I think, in May of 1978. And that was the day that I was having a conversation with my dad. And I know I've talked about this before, but I want you to think about it in light of these passages, these verses. On that day in May of 1978, I asked my dad, I said, Dad, how do I become a Christian? In this framework, he essentially said, Joel, you have to put off your old self, which as a five-year-old, that meant, Joel, you have to confess your sins. You have to repent. You have to say, I'm sorry for being a sinner. And then you have to put on Christ. In his words, he said, Joel, you have to accept Jesus in your heart. We don't use that phrasing very much, but the whole idea is you have to be identified in him. And you know what was so interesting is, is very shortly after that, my, I could tell that my life was beginning to be transformed. My life was beginning to be reformed. The temper that I had with my brother, sure, it flared up from time to time, but it had generally subsided. The things that I wanted for me Generally, now we're submitted to Christ, and I, I, I wanted his things for me. But every day since that day in 1978 has been this process of, trans, of gradual transforming and renewing by God. Yeah, some immediate change happened. There's gradual progress, and unfortunately, there are setbacks. There are, there's failing. There's falling. And there's some other successes. But as, as Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And oh, what a joy that is to know that Jesus Christ is not done with any of us until he calls us home. And so if you're frustrated with your position of renewal, then just be patient. Confess, wait Yield yourself before the Lord and continue to press on because God is not done with you yet. And if you've not yet put off your old self and if you've not yet put on Christ, then let me encourage you to, to get that dealt with today. 
Let's have a conversation after church. Let's get together. Let's talk sometime this week. Because ultimately, religious activity isn't going to get you into God's space. It's not going to get you into His glory. That only happens through the sacrifice of His Son. Let's pray. Father, we do thank